Well, good morning. I want to welcome you here. Why don't we stand together? And I just want to encourage us, maybe you're watching live stream. I don't know if you realize it, but last Thursday, the premier made deeper relaxations, and now we can have up to one-third of our room capacity, which in our tr it translates into 250 people can attend the service. So uh, I'm excited about that. And I'm praying because I'm hoping within the next month when we have a total relaxation, we will have an awesome time. All right. And everybody can show up. That'd be great. So we want to thank you for that. Let's pray this morning. I am uh, taking us through the book of First Peter, and I believe God wants to do a miracle today in your life. I just believe that with all of my heart. I just sense it in my spirit. We've just had uh, three days of fasting and prayer in our church, and I always sense that the service afterwards, God does some really powerful things. There just seems to be a new freedom in our soul. Anybody sense that this morning? There's a, maybe there's more people here. There's more excitement. There's a deeper sense that God wants to do something. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you this morning that you want to move supernaturally in our lives, and you are a gracious Father. And I just pray today as we hear your word, Lord, and I know there's a lot of information here, but I just pray that you'd open up the eyes of our understanding, that you would quicken this message into our hearts, that you would speak to us uh, not only collectively, but that you would speak into our, each of us individually, and you would speak into the areas of brokenness and pain that maybe we're living with and experiencing, and we feel entrapped and frustrated, and we can't seem to move beyond it. I believe today that this is Breakthrough Sunday. I believe today that there's victories that are going to happen in the human heart, Father, and I just believe that with all of my heart. We've been praying to that end, and we now pray, Lord, that you would supernaturally do an amazing work of grace in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen, amen. You may be seated. How many know scaling Mount Everest is a major accomplishment. Anybody believe that? Anybody ever see anything about it? I tell you, you get towards the end, they have to kind of go back and forth. They've got so much going on there. It takes preparation. And it also requires experienced guides to take you to the very top. It's very dangerous. It's difficult. And people have lost their lives trying to ascend Mount Everest. You know, Actually, I read here recently a record-holding Sherpa climber, that's one of the guides, uh, had recently halted his attempt on scaling Mount Everest. This would have been his 26th trip to the summit. But because of a bad dream, he made a decision not to continue. Uh, Kamaridi had already reached the summit in May of 7th of this year for a record 25th time. And he was actually leading people from other countries, other climbers, but some of them were battling COVID at the time. And so as a result of this dream and what was happening to his group, he decided to just forget it, not climb the mountain for the 26th time. Now, how many know uh, that it, this kind of shows us something, that it takes help to get to the top of the mountain? And so I'm going to use the mountain as an illustration called life. And I believe that you and I are ascending a mountain called life and that it takes guidance to get to the very top of the ascent of this mountain. It's like scaling it. And in the Christian life, we actually need a guide to navigate our lives through all of the treacherous ter ter uh, terrain that we're about to encounter in this life. And Jesus is the only guide who is capable of taking us as believers over the mountain called life, and particularly that place on the ascent where we encounter injustice. 
As a matter of fact, if you climb a mountain, there's different elements that you have to do when you're climbing a mountain. And I believe that God you know, recognizes in this broken, fallen world that you and I will experience uh, people hurting us. You and I will experience times where what's been done to us has been a terrible wrong and it's been a great injustice. And I believe that that happens. And that every human being on this planet at some point or other will experience injustice in their lives. In the book of Hebrews, we have this very picture of Jesus as the one who is walking the path before us, as really, in a sense, our guide. In the book of Hebrews chapter 12 and verse one, it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. You know that word pioneer there is the archagos. And it's, it's the person who goes before us. He's the beginner. He's the trailblazer. He's the guy that's taking us on this path called life. And, and he said, for the joy that was set before him, he endured what? He endured the cross. How many know the cross was a place of injustice? Jesus endured injustice. He scorned at shame. He sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What's the great temptation when you're scaling a mountain? Fatigue, right? I mean, it gets difficult, and after a while, you don't want to do it anymore, you, you know? But here, it says here that you and I are scaling and ascending this mountain, and there will be opposition to us as we're ascending this mountain of faith, this mountain that we're walking with Jesus, we're following his leadership, and yet he says that we do not want to lose uh, heart or grow weary in the process. Um, it's, we could argue that the greatest injustice that ever happened in the, all of human history was the injustice that happened to Jesus at the cross. And yet God allowed it for a divine purpose. And people often think that all God has to do to forgive sins is to simply say so, but actually that would be a violation of justice. And God is a what? He's a just God. And God is not going to do that. So God forgives our sins based on the fact that he himself addressed all, uh, all injustice. And how does God go about addressing injustices? He pays the price by taking on himself all of the penalty or all of the injustices of the world. Now, how many can imagine when Jesus went to the cross, and I had such an epiphany Monday night in our prayer and fasting time, that Jesus took on all of the uh, the, the, the perversion, the abomination, the sin, the injustice of the world upon himself. How many, that, that's kind of a, a, a terrible thought, isn't it? That Jesus took all of this garbage on himself. That's overwhelming at times when we think of that. Actually, God himself turned away. The Father turned away, and there was darkness in the land. That's a picture of the sense that Jesus was, became sin for us, that he was actually forsaken. He, he was abandoned at that moment. You and I have never been abandoned as believers, but Jesus at that moment became sin for us. Um, he did that by dying in our place on the cross. And it was there that the penalty for all injustices was paid in full. So Jesus' death then is the substitution for all injustices. And on that basis alone does God forgive the guilty. 
And folks, every one of us is guilty. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all gone our own way. We've all sinned against Almighty, Almighty God. So the question I'm raising today is, how do we handle personal injustice? How many think that might be an important question? How are we going to handle it when people wrong us, when people sin against us? How do we handle that? And the question we usually ask is, when we're going through things like this, like injustices or, you know, we're suffering because of injustice, we, the question we always ask is, why? Isn't that true? That's the big why question comes out there, you know? And I think a better question should be, how? Instead of thinking about why, you know, why is this happening to me, or maybe we should ask the question, how can I endure and grow through the season or moment of injustice. I mean, I think if we just change the why to a how, it would all of a sudden shift our whole way of looking at the problem. I mean, I think right off the bat, just changing one word. Let's move from why to how. I think that would be great. Okay, now, sometimes, you know, we, could, we can sometimes say, well, am I suffering because I'm doing something wrong? And then yet, I'm going to keep bringing this up in Peter's letter. He's going to argue sometimes we suffer because we're doing what's right. You don't just suffer because you do what's wrong. You can suffer because you're doing the right thing. And sometimes we have suffered because of that. Uh, Peter is now going to explain to his readers in the first century how to climb the mountain of injustice. And I, I, I think what I'm trying to get across is how do we take the words of Peter here in his first century context and begin to apply them in the 21st century? And one of the biggest issues in the first century was slavery. It was a very big issue, and uh, we're not dealing with it at the same degree that they were dealing with it, but I believe there's some fundamental principles that we can take from that context and bring it into the 21st century. Because how many can agree with me, slavery was a great injustice? There's no question about that, okay? Howard Marshall shares the motivation for us learning this critical element in our life. He says, in all of our social relationships, our conduct should spring out of our reverence for God and a desire to do his will. How many say that? That would be important. That I want to always have a reverence or a fear of God and I always want to do what the Father wants me to do. I want to do the will of God in every situation. So in other words, it's not so much about me or you, but rather what will bring honor and glory to God from what we're experiencing in our lives at any given moment. I mean, can you imagine if that was our, we locked it, that thing into our minds that from this point on, everything that happens to me, I want it to be about the bringing God glory in this experience. Could you imagine how we would respond to things? How can I bring God's glory into this current moment in my life? Including times that I'm treated poorly or including the injustices that are coming into my life. How can God be glorified in this situation? And so Peter wants us to keep two important concepts in mind when we're dealing with injustice in our lives. And these are the ones I want to look at today. And the first one is the idea of submission. Because you know when, you, when you're preaching through a book, you're, you're starting at a verse, but really it's still flowing from the verses we previously looked at. And so the last week, if you looked up my sermon, Swimming with the Shark, it was actually dealing with this issue of submission. And so Peter continues on with this idea. And we're going to look at that a little more closely. The starting point always begins with God. We must surrender our will and way to him. And that always takes faith on our part. 
How many, you know, it takes faith to surrender yourself to God. It takes faith to trust God when life isn't working the way you think it ought to. And we really understand how doing things God's way works. Right? Sometimes it doesn't always make sense to do what God's telling us to do. Like sometimes when somebody hurts us, God says, I want you to forgive them. You go, I don't feel like doing that. I don't see how that's going to make any difference. I don't see how that's going to bring any good from this thing. See, we, we kind of default to our natural understanding. It takes faith to say, okay, I'm going to do it your way, God, even though emotionally I may not want to do that. You know, it doesn't always seem right from our vantage point, but yet we need to trust him to lead us through this part of the climb, the ascent up the mountain. Our attitude and response to suffering and justices is the key to prevailing through those places on the climb. You know, the concept, as I've already said, is a continuation. How to live to please God in a hostile world to God, in a hostile world to people who follow God. We saw that it was a life of submission to those in authority with the caveat that we must only obey God and we only obey the leaders above us if they're asking us to obey God or if they're asking us to disobey God, obviously we have to conscientiously object. But that's usually, you know, not the norm. That's not normally what's happening, okay? Why do I say all of that? Because generally speaking, you and I are dealing with our own issues of rebellion. That's why he's talking so much about submission because by nature, you and I are not submitted people. You and I, by nature, are rebels against all authority. We rebel against God and we rebel against people in authority. That's why we keep getting these injunctions. Here we see that submission is extended into the injustices of slavery. This is really challenging stuff. Look at verse 18. He starts there. Slaves, in reverent fear of God... Now, this is the reason why he's saying, submit to yourselves to your masters. Not only to those who are good and considerate. How many of that's kind of easy when, you know, it's always easy to submit to an authority when you agree with them. How many of it's far harder to submit to someone in authority when you totally disagree with them? Or maybe they're not treating you nicely. Or maybe they're being inconsiderate. Or maybe they're treating you harshly. But he says, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're, what? Conscious of God. In other words, they're recognizing, I'm doing something not because this person is asking me to do it. I'm doing it because God is asking me to do it. I'm aware of the presence of God in this situation. Now, how many know this kind of teaching would be very difficult for people to accept in our current time and culture. How many say this is really difficult for people to swallow? Does anybody agree with that? This is not the culture we're living in today. Everyone's standing up for their rights. We're fighting against injustices. So here I'm, t I'm saying something that's going cross-current to everything that's being said and done right now. Everybody follow this? Some of you are probably going, oh, I don't even know if I like hearing this, Pastor. I don't even know if I agree with you today. Well, today's response to rebel, fight back, that, you know, that's, that's usually the response of today. That's how people want to handle injustice. We want to retaliate, want to fight back. Now, I'm, I'm under, I, just hang in there. I think there's a place where we address injustice. So don't write me off yet. I'm not saying we take injustice as hook, line, and sinker. But what I'm saying is be careful your attitude in the midst of injustice. That's the point I'm driving at right now. Be careful we don't take personal vendettas. We, we're upset, we're angry, and it's personal. We, it becomes very personal to us. Be careful of that. 
Some might even argue that this is why the Bible's no longer relevant. But what we need to understand is that the nuance that Peter's going to give us does have application for this moment. As he pointed out in 1 Timothy 2.17, we're to show honor and respect for all people. But, our, uh, but we're also called to submit to those who are in a hierarchical relationship to us. Now, you know, see, we live in such an egalitarian culture, we don't even believe in hierarchy. How many say that's true? Come on. How many say that this is probably true right now? In this current culture and context, people believe in egalitarianism and they believe there's no level of hierarchy. But can I just, can I just tell you, I'm going to shatter that right now. Because there is a hierarchical situation. I want to show it to you from Scripture. Number one, God is the ultimate authority. You and I are not equal to God. How many here can say, yeah, pastor, I, that one I will buy, okay? There's a hierarchy there. Everybody get that, right? But just hang on now. Uh, that means we're to submit to those in leadership in the realm of government, church, and family life. Oh, I don't know about this one. See, this is where we're going to start struggling. See, children are to submit to their parents. How many parents believe that's true? Children should submit to their parents. Okay, we all believe that. Okay, check that box off. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Uh, we're having a harder time with that one, Pastor. Yet, but I have to keep quoting scripture. You know, Ephesians chapter 5 says, wives submit to your husbands, right? I could talk about husbands submit to your wives, but the way it's framed in Ephesians, it doesn't say it that way. It says, husbands love your wives. But it says, wives submit to your husband. There's a sense of hierarchy here. It says, you know, uh, those that are governing authorities, we're to submit to them. Well, yeah, but I don't like them, Pastor. I don't read that caveat in the Bible. Well, I don't agree with their politics, Pastor. I don't read that one there either. Sorry, guys. It's not in there. So when I read these words, I have to go, hmm, God must be meaning what he's saying. So we have to understand is the context in which Peter's writing. And you know, ancient slavery was a grave injustice in the history of the human story. And it's true. I would argue that to him, you know, it's never been God's intention. J.A. Harrell points out that slavery was not based on race in the ancient world. That was true. It wasn't based on race. Now, in more modern times it has been, but that's not the way it was in the ancient world. Despite claims of some New Testament scholars, ancient slavery was not more humane than modern slavery. Slavery has always been inhumane. It's always been awful. It's terrible. It's an evil. We need to understand that. Howard Marshall explains the different reasons why people were enslaved in ancient, the ancient world. He said people were enslaved for various reasons. One, if you were a child of a slave, you were a slave. If you were a prisoner of war, you became enslaved. Or you fell into debt. By the way, they didn't have, you know, the rescuing, chapter 11. That didn't happen. You just were enslaved to somebody. Wow. Actually, I kind of think we are enslaved to our debt in the modern world, right? Though I think we're in denial about that, but that's okay. We, it's true. It says the general tendency in the New Testament times was towards improving the lot of slaves. Well, somewhat, because it depends what kind of slaves you were. If you were a household slave, it was a lot better for you. But if you were a field slave or if you worked in the mines, your life was shortened by a long shot. It was very dangerous stuff, you know? Now, 
manumission, which is you know, the ability to get freedom, was possible if a slave could raise sufficient money from his earnings to secure redemption or could make a contract to serve his former master as a free person. This is very interesting. And actually, in the Roman world, sometimes the slaves were far more educated than their masters. Many of the Greek slaves were extremely brilliant and well-educated and were used as tutors for Roman children. How many knew that? Totally different world. So, you know, sometimes we compare apples to apples, but that's not the way it is. So the ancient world was a little different, but slavery was ever much a reality. Thomas uh, Schreiner says this, it is crucial to note that the New Testament nowhere commends slavery as a social structure. It nowhere finds its roots in the created order as if slavery is some sort of an institution ordered by God. Why am I saying this? Because people argued that it was in the past. It's true. American history studied the southern states. They argued that it was God or that orchestrated slavery. Wrong. Didn't do that. The contrast with marriage is remarkable at this very point. God ordained the institution of marriage, but slavery was invented by human beings. It was an evil. The New Testament regulates the institution of slavery as it exists in society, but it does not commend it per se. What is he saying? He's saying... Because there was so much slavery, they had to do something with it, you know. As a matter of fact, um, slavery was very pronounced in the ancient world. The point that Peter's making is one that we need to do when asked, even though a person who is asking sometimes could be a harsh person. Karen Jobes uh, makes an appeal that we need to understand the social, political, and cultural background of both the Old Testament Jewish writers and the Greco-Roman worldviews in order to understand what Peter's explaining to these believers who have experienced the life-altering power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the Greek moral code of the day, slaves, children, and women were treated as classes of people in relationship to their fathers, husbands, and masters. The Greek philosophers didn't directly address them, which is in contrast to Peter. Actually, you know, Aristotle, as brilliant as he was, he saw slaves as just property. Isn't that interesting? The brilliant philosopher, Aristotle. I don't know if you've read anything about him, but that's what he says. You know, now Peter is actually speaking to the groups that many other philosophers and the rest of the people wouldn't even address because they weren't even considered worth talking to. But the New Testament doesn't do that. It speaks to them. He speaks to their moral responsibilities. That's amazing because he treats them as people. And their social behaviors that would exceed the expectations of that time. Now, one of the examples of how the gospel was actually undermining the issue of slavery was simply this. Peter's instructions to Christian slaves and wives is that he rejected the cultural expectation that the slave must worship his or her master's God and a wife must worship her husband's gods. How many knew that's the way it worked? Very interesting, isn't it? And so what Peter's saying is you don't need to do that. That's undermining something. As a matter of fact, it is estimated that almost one quarter of the empire's population were slaves. That's a lot. Could you imagine one of every four people living in Red Deer was living in slavery? That would be pretty significant, wouldn't it? And it would affect... Uh, it was so significant, it was affecting the social and economic stability of the empire. And so the slaves' loyalty to their master's gods actually in one sense was assuming or assuring economic stability. So in any, 
in particularly any religion that advocated equality of any kind between slaves and masters would be met with swift and certain opposition. So Peter's well aware of these things. Howard Marshall points out, isn't Peter's advice an acquiescence to an evil structure in society or the commission of crime and injustice? Is, in other words, because Peter's not speaking out against it, isn't Peter kind of going along with it? Because that's the argument that people make all the time. If you don't speak out against something, then you're going along with it. I've heard this argument over and over and over again. Not necessarily so. A clue to Peter's answer might be found if we consider further what is meant by bearing suffering. The phrase probably means bearing it without retaliation. And what that means, uh, one can take action against injustice and unjust structures in society without engaging in personal retaliation. So what these writers are saying here is simply this, that it's okay for you and I to stand up against injustice. What the problem is, is when we take it personally and we start retaliating. That's when we cross the line. That's when we stop suffering. That's when we stop, you know, we're not handling it in the right way. Our attitude is being shredded at that point, and we're being caught up with the evil. It's actually overcoming us when we're doing that. How many catch what I'm saying? It's okay to stand up and, and, and you know, try to stand up for what's just. It's good to do that. It's good to advocate against injustice. But when we, there's a line that we can't cross, and that's when it becomes a personal vendetta. It's when we try to go out and get, avenge our injustice. It creates all kinds of problems. That's what I'm trying to explain. I remember years ago reading the story during the Korean conflict. The young Korean boy was, you know, kind of a houseboy for these American GIs. And, you know, they, they were giving him a bad time. They weren't nice to him. They didn't treat him really good. You know, and, and you know, he was really pleasant. You know, he would just seem real sweet, real nice. You know, and they just couldn't understand how he could handle all the crazy stuff that they were doing, you know bugging him, teasing him, you know, giving him a bad time. Until one day one of the GIs noticed that every time before he was serving their soup, he was spitting in each bowl. So, you know, that's what I'm talking about. What God is basically saying here is, you know, you and I can't just be spitting into people's bowls. You know, you and I can't take this stuff and begin to allow that to affect us so that we're retaliating in kind. God's word is urging us that we, we who are empowered by God's spirit should address these things without malice and a desire for revenge. But how many know when we feel mistreated, when we're wounded, what do we tend to do? We tend to retaliate. Do we not? We get angry, we get frustrated, we get, it affects us. Our response to people gets affected by that. We can become even passive aggressive, we can withdraw. You know, it's really, I was struck the other day, I was listening to some lectures and it really hit me. You know, a lot of times we don't think we're angry because we become silent and withdraw, but that's just another form of anger. And we need to understand that something's happening inside of us. Peter's challenge is that we follow in the path set forth by our heavenly guide, the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 20. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? He's saying, in other words, if you put up with being punished because you did the wrong thing, he says, that's, no, that's not commendable. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. In other words, when you're being treated unjustly and you, t and you actually handle that, God is commending you for that attitude. And then he says this next verse, which is so powerful in verse 21. To this you were called. 
Well, can I just stop there for a minute and just say this? How many understand the word call there is idea of vocation? That you and I as believers have actually been called to suffer. How many actually recognize that we've been called to suffer? Actually, in chapter 4, verse 1, he's going to say, arm your mind, be prepared to suffer. I don't believe that most of us believe that we should ever have to suffer. And that we somehow think that this is against God's will and purposes for our lives. And yet, I'm going to argue today that we're living in a sin-filled world, and that this world is, is groaning under the weight of sin, and that you and I are in this world, and even though we're loved by the Father, there's points and times in our lives where we suffer for what's happening around us and what happens to us as a result of the overall arching nature of sin in our world. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you what? An example. Uh, yeah, leaving us an example here. And then he says this, that you should follow in his steps. Now, there's two powerful ideas that are being introduced here. The first one is that part of our calling is that we are to be prepared to suffer and endure for doing good, number one. You and I need to know that. I would write this down. In, if you don't, you know, that's why I would be taking notes. This is what I need to do. I need to be prepared to suffer and I need to endure it, even though I'm doing good. Now that sounds challenging, and it is. But we of all people can do it. Why? Because we have hope in the time of suffering. Do you know when you're not a follower of Christ, you have no hope in a time of suffering? You and I have hope in a time of suffering. We know there's a better day coming. And now, even if it's not in this current earthly life, we know we have an eternal life with God. We always have a hope. We always know that the suffering is going to come to an end. We always know that there's great joy awaiting us. We always know that God is for us. We always know we're beloved by God. Those are powerful, hope-filled things that help sustain us in those moments. But one of the more powerful verses written to believers is that we can have assurance that in our case as followers of Jesus, everything is happening to us that God will use for his redemptive purposes for our lives. I love Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And it says, and we know, and we know. Who's the we? Who is the we? Believers. This is not written to all people. See, sometimes we do that. Well, this is all going to work. No, if you're not a believer, this verse doesn't apply to you folks. I'm sorry. This is a verse that applies to specifically people who are followers of Jesus. And we know that in. And I, I put a little parenthesis here just because it's not for all things. You know, all things, some things are nasty and evil and awful. But even in those things, not because of those things or for those things, God is working for good to those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What's going on here? God says, I'm even using the things that are negative and suffering and difficult and unjust to conform you to the image of my son, which is my goal for your life. And we need to have the same goal as God has. The goal of my life should be to become like Christ. The goal for your life as a child of God should be, I want to be just like Jesus. I want to be more patient. I want to be more long-suffering. I want to be kinder. I want to be more generous. I want to be more forgiving. I want to be just like Jesus. That should be our goal. And so whatever comes our way, we should say, God, how is this that's come into my life for now moving me towards the ultimate goal of becoming more like you? 
Peter is basically challenging us that we are to endure suffering for doing good rather than suffering for doing what is wrong. The second aspect is that Jesus here is used as our guide whose footprints we need to step in. Now, how many know if you were climbing Mount Everest right now and you had a Sherpa guide and he said to you, now listen, on this stretch, this is an ice crevice and there's... If you step in the wrong place, even though it looks like it's totally got snow and everything, there are places, if you step right now, you're going down 2,000 feet. I want you to step exactly where I step, no other place. How many here in this room would be going, if I'm at that stage, I'd be looking very carefully to where he's stepping, and I would be making sure my feet are going right into where his feet are. How many would be following that? Because you know that your life is on the line there. I want you to hear this. This is so beautiful. Paul Actemeyer says this, the word for example, follow, remember he says follow his example, is the word hypogrammon. And it's only used one time in the New Testament. And it's used here, and it literally means the pattern of letters of the alphabet by means of which children, by tracing over, learn to write. Now how many remember back in the days when you were learning cursive writing, and they had those little letters, and they had little dots on them? How many remember back to this? There was little dots, like, you know, the A, you know, if you're making the A, and then you just kind of, kind of follow the cursive dots so you could start writing. How many remember that? Anybody besides me remember that? Isn't that amazing? This is exactly what he's talking about. Is this amazing or what? And I like what uh, Karen Job writes. She says, it suggests the closest of copies. The English words such as example, model, or pattern are too weak. For Jesus' suffering is not simply an example or pattern or model as if he's one of many. He is the paradigm by which Christians write large the letters of his gospel in their lives. Now, what is he saying? What is she saying? They're saying simply this, that the proper understanding of suffering is that I'm looking at Jesus and I'm going to exactly copy his model. So when Jesus is reviled and he doesn't revile back, what does that say to me? I'm being reviled. That means somebody's talking to me negatively and I'm not even retaliating back verbally. Is that powerful? Wow, this is so amazing to me. This is how I need to handle the injustice. I need to look very carefully at my, my guide. I need to look at Jesus. I need to look exactly how he's writing it out in his life and I need to start copying his pattern. That's powerful, is it not? I think it is. I think there's so many dramatic stories of people who have forgiven of the most devastating experiences in life. I was, you know, trying to look some up and I ran into this lady named Mary Johnson who forgave the man who murdered her only son. Can you imagine? Here's, they were at a party and this young man shot and killed her only son. And what a profound moment happened. But it took years of turmoil and some prayer, and she went and finally visited him and forgave him. And at that moment, she was totally freed. She started down the path of forgiveness. And at the sentencing for Oshi Israel, the teenager who shot her 20-year-old son, when she forgave him, she said something began to happen. Some people, she said, now think she's crazy because she forgave the one who murdered her son. But this is amazing to me. The pair now share the experience around the country because he got released from prison. And they now have a ministry together called From Death to Life. 
a nonprofit that provides healing and reconciliation between families of victims and those who cause harm. As a matter of fact, Johnson calls Israel, this young man who killed her son, her spiritual son. And he refers to her as the second mom. And they now live next door to each other for more than two years. How many know that's, that's profound? That is profound forgiveness, is it not? But let me tell you something. When that happens, it frees you. Now, I don't know how much injustice has been done in your life, but I can't even imagine losing one of my only children to someone and then turning around and embracing them and bringing them into my life as if they're my child. That's profound. But in a sense, isn't that what Jesus did? That the Father gave up his only son for us. And now he's adopted us into his family. We who, in a sense, because of our sins, killed him. And now we are his sons and daughters. Is that amazing? And has not Mary Johnson actually simply followed the cursive writing of the script that the fathers provided for her and followed in that suit? Absolutely. But let me move on to the second concept. It's the idea of surrendering it to God. I think we need to learn to entrust our hearts, our circumstances, our pain, and the perpetrators all to God. We need to re-examine the example of Jesus in order to have the right attitude about life's injustices. The Bible says here, he entrusted himself to the Father to address the injustice of the cross. Listen to what it says in verse 22. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. I mean, Jesus could have threatened people, you know, but he didn't do that. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. What's usually the human response to injustice? Outrage. We're seeing all of it right now. I, I, that's all I hear in our culture right now. Just outrage everywhere. There's outrage. And, and I'm not saying it's wrong to feel a sense of outrage when we hear of the terrible injustice. There's an emotional feeling of the human response to injustice is outrage. True? Yes, it is. And yet, and then there's a desire for justice to occur, and I don't even think that's wrong. But what happens when you and I are the perpetrators of injustice? Hmm. What happens when we sin against another person and we are the ones that are found to be guilty of creating an injustice? Well, then we want mercy. Isn't that true? Yeah, of course. That's what we want. But let me move us back to being the victim for a moment. We've been treated poorly. And we're thinking this is so audacious, so unfair. This is especially true when our good to others is being misunderstood. It's being abused when we've suffered wrongly. How do we address that emotional pain in our life? You know, some people lash out, express outrage and anger, and they seek revenge or vengeance. For others, they suppress that outrage and it often manifests itself in emotional and internal turmoil. I remember years ago going to seminary and one of the professors there, he was a, you know, he was a, not an on-staff professor, but he came in to do a course and he had an, you know, he's a medical doctor, but he also was a trained clinical psychologist. Very unique gifting. How many think being a medical doctor and a clinical psychologist all rolled into one's quite unique? 
And so he's explaining, the course was called reactive depression. It was basically explaining that, you know, a lot, not all depressions are reactive depressions. But he was explaining the nature of reactive depression. What he means is there's usually a trigger point and somebody gets hurt. And so what happens is people spiral. And so he was talking about some of the ways you can treat people. First of all, some of them get so poor that they can't even function. You need to medicate because of the synopsis in our minds, the little things that are jumping between our brains. They're not even firing anymore. But he said if you're just treating people medically or with uh, drugs, he said, eventually you're not getting to the root issue. You, you need counseling. You need to get past all of that. And so he's explaining all of this to the class. Very fascinating class. But he said, one of the things happens is people internalize that pain and it becomes anger. And he said, a lot of times what, what, what depression is is just unresolved anger on the inside. People are walking around like time bombs. And we can see that. People just one day explode. It makes no sense. It's irrational. There's so much resentment that's being built up there. So, what is the right response then to life's hurts and injustices? We need to commit these injustices to God and allow him to deal with the perpetrators, number one. Wayne Gruden, who's a New Testament scholar, said, but committing the situation to God, knowing that ultimately the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality with God. God's, you know, just because somebody's got money means zero to God. They're a human being that's going to stand accountable to him. Means that our sense of wrong suffering can be put at rest and enables us then to imitate Jesus in praying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Actually, Father, forgive them and help them to get it right because if you come back and deal with them when they're unrepentant, it's not going to go well for them, right? We thus seek for the wrongdoers, not forgiveness without cost, which is impossible in God's just universe. See, I think we think, you know, people say, well, it doesn't seem fair that I can just forgive somebody and they get off scot-free. And the answer is nobody gets off scot-free. You see, somebody pays the cost of that injustice. It's either Christ on the cross or that person, you know, obviously is going to pay a price. How many even, I, I've been reading recently in the scriptures that even people who ask sin and ask God for forgiveness, there's always a consequence. And we keep forgetting that somehow. It's really bizarre in my thinking. Why do we think we're going to get off scot-free? It doesn't exist. That critter doesn't exist on the planet. You know, but forgiveness is now paid by the great cost of the blood of Christ. We need to learn to entrust injustice as ultimately to God. You know, listen what Paul says to the people at Thessalonica who were being persecuted. Listen when he writes to them. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just, and he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. What is he saying? Move over, big brother's coming in. And give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels and he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Wow. How many go, uh-oh, there is, there is going to be some level of retribution, folks. There is going to be ultimate justice. As a matter of fact, I cannot read the book of Revelation and hear the cry from Revelation 6, 9, who are saying, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. These are the voices of the martyrs. 
Do you realize that every injustice, rather than people realize it or not, a cry is now ascending into heaven. So every, this is going to freak some people out, but you know every single aborted child, every single uh, injustice that has ever been committed on this planet is now a cry ascending to God. You know, some people go, well, you know, what, what, you know, everyone goes, well, God's so loving. What's he going to do? I'm going, yeah, God's loving, and part of love is that he hates evil. Part of love is he's going to address all evil. There's going to be an addressing of all injustice. So what is he telling you and I who have been wronged? Well, number one, just entrust it to God. Let him deal with people. Because if you and I were to address our just injustices, we would never address it correctly. You know, Remember the Old Testament, an eye for an eye? Why was that? That was actually mediating something that was fair. Because when you and I lose an eye, we want to take a life. What do you mean? We never want to pay back just exactly what happened to us. We always want to hurt people far more deeply than we've been hurt. That's the truth. We just don't know how to execute justice very well. Thomas Schreiner says, The scriptures nowhere teach that believers can refrain from retaliation because they become stoics in suffering and put on a brave face. Rather, he says, believers triumph over evil because they trust God will vindicate them and judge their enemies, putting everything right in the end. That's the right viewpoint. Jesus' suffering was efficacious in nature, empowering us to do what's right. The results of Jesus' suffering had a powerful result on the lives of others, including ourselves. He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins. And then it says, and live for righteousness, for by his wounds you've been healed. What's, what's so amazing about this statement is that it's not so much emphasizing that Jesus died to provide for forgiveness, which he did, but that another aspect of Christ's sacrifice is that it empowers us to do what's right, especially in times when we're experiencing injustice, even as Jesus did. What, is it, what am I saying? That when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just forgive your sins. He gave you the power so that you could forgive other people their sins. How many say that's amazing? Isn't that great? So don't tell me you can't do it, because the Spirit of God says you can. I live in you. I'm a forgiver, okay? I can help you do the right thing. We're to live a new life. We no longer have to lash out, but we can respond in a manner that was once foreign to us. We can respond in grace and forgiveness. Why? Because we have experienced God's grace and forgiveness in our own lives. As a matter of fact, Peter's quoting from Isaiah 53, 5, that Jesus died in order for our wounds to be healed, while in Matthew 8, 17, he quotes, Matthew quotes the same text to explain how Jesus went about healing the sick. Here, Peter is now talking about the healing that Jesus brings to our sin-sick souls because of the ravages of sin. Jesus heals our sin-sick souls in order for us to be able to live properly and in a healthy way despite life's injustices. The answer to our wounded life is Jesus. For you are like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And we have two metaphors, I'm going to close with this, that describe the relationship we have with Jesus as a result of the gospel power in our lives. First, Jesus is described as the shepherd of the sheep which have strayed. This speaks to the nature of the human heart that rebels rather than submits. How many know we're rebels, not submitters? Let's be honest, Right? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have a rebellious nature. But Peter again is quoting from Isaiah 53. We rebel against the ultimate authority, which is God himself. And there's no one who's exempt from this reality. To suggest that we are intrinsically good flies in the face of the teaching of Scripture 
and denies a real honest evaluation of the human soul. Edwin Silwin says, in what sense, we may ask, did Christ bear our sins? In a sense, he took the blame for it, suffering the curse for them, which is separation from God and enduring the penal consequences. But let me move on to the last little uh, metaphor here. And it's simply this. Jesus, not, not only is he the shepherd of our souls, but he's the episcopal, he's the, the overseer of our souls. You know, it's the Greek word episkopos, which means someone who's over and sees. That's why the Bible says overseer. But I like R.C. Sproul says, in the ancient Greek world, the episkopos was the one who came unannounced to the troops to see if they were prepared for battle. And if they were not, he would chasten them. And if they were, he would congratulate and reward them. What strikes me about this image is that Peter, who earlier has warned about abstaining from fleshly desires, which war against our souls, seems to be challenging us with the battle that life presents itself to us. This imagery certainly moves us away from a sense of living an entitled life as we see here, a life filled with danger, challenge, and obstacles that need to be overcome. And that's why I paint the picture of mountain climbing. I think it's fitting. We need to follow very carefully the trail that's been mapped out for us by our heavenly guide. So I'm gonna close with this. I'm gonna have a stand. I want you to picture with me that we're climbing a mountain because that's what we're doing. It's called life. And there's some very treacherous parts on this mountain. But the good news is we have a guide. His name is Jesus. So if you've given your life to Jesus, you have the guide that's going before you. How many say thank God for that? I'm so thankful for that. I have no idea how to ascend to the summit without this guide. But you know what? Jesus has walked there before. And yet some of us, we have now stumbled on the ascent. We came to this very difficult ground called unforgiveness, injustice. We've been wronged, we've been hurt. We haven't processed this correctly, we're stuck. We seem now to be afraid to move. You ever been to the place where you're, you know, I don't like heights, so I can really relate to this. I mean, you don't even wanna move because you're afraid to go anywhere, you're afraid to fall. You're afraid to go up, you're afraid to go down, you're just stuck. And I think there's Christians like that, living this kind of a life, they're just stuck. They haven't moved forward for a long time. You know, they, they, they're just locked in. They're just not growing in their spiritual life because there's something inside of them that's holding them down. And what's holding them down is this sense of bitterness and unforgiveness and this hurt and this, and, and maybe this regressive, uh, this, maybe this, this depression that's filtered into your heart. And it's not because, it's, it's because of a hurt that you've never really processed. You've just internalized it. You're stuck. But here's the picture I want you to have right now with every head bowed and every eyes closed right now. I want you to see something. Jesus has now realized that you are stuck on this spot and he wants to help you up. And what he's doing right now, and I want you to picture this in your mind, he's reaching his hand down to you right now. And he's telling you, grab my hand. I'm gonna lift you up. And all you and I need to do right now is lift our hand up. And if that's you right now, right now, God's Spirit is speaking to you. You're stuck. You've got hurt and anger and frustration and, and there's resentment inside of you and there's all kinds of stuff going on the inside. Listen, Jesus wants to lift you today. He, he wants you to reach up your hand, grab his hand. He wants you to, to, 
He wants to pull you up. He wants to pull you out. He wants you to continue to ascend the mountain with him as your guide. And right now, I want you to think back to some of the things in your soul right now that you need to let go of. There's some unforgiveness. Maybe uh, whatever that wounding has been. And some of you say, yeah, but I forgave that person. I've learned one thing about forgiveness. Sometimes the wounding is so deep, it's layered. It's like an onion. You know, I don't know how many times in my life I had to process a wounding that was so deep in my life. You know, I, I'd forgiven this person many times, and yet, I, you know, every time I thought I was completely free from the woundedness, I would come to another place on the mountain that was the same person. It was the same stuff. And I was going, my goodness, how many times do I have to forgive this person? I believe you have to peel that onion until there's nothing left. I believe that you got to just keep peeling it off until finally there's a moment where now it's, it's no longer affecting you whatsoever. The Holy Spirit's never bringing it back up because it's over. You have now completely let go of that another layer till you get to the final layer and there's nothing left to forgive. Maybe that's you today. Just raise your hand. Let the Spirit of God just begin to touch you today. Father, I just pray right now that as you are reaching down, people are reaching up and they're saying, Lord, I want to let go of this woundedness. I want to let go of this bitterness. I want to let go of this anger. I want to let go of this resentment. I want to let go of this poison in my soul, Lord. I want to be free from this. I want to walk in grace. I want to walk in freedom. I want to walk like you walked. I want to make sure my steps are following your steps exactly so that I don't fall through that crevice, Lord, that I'm serving you with all of my heart. I want to process all this injustice, all this wrongdoing that's been done to me. I'm now entrusting it to you. You're the one who can address the wrongdoers. I'm letting it go. I don't have any claim over them. I've given them up to you today, Lord. I'm releasing them because you're a just God, and I know that you'll deal with them according to your justice and not mine. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.